Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and today my guest is Brent Philbin, who is a professional poker player. He recently went to South by Southwest in, is it Austin, Texas? I don't want to mess it up. Yes, Austin, definitely Austin, Texas. I had to think twice because before this, I was thinking of San Antonio, Texas, which is, as you told me, one hour away. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that you have these cryptocurrency-related events. And to me, it's also fascinating to observe how not very much of what's going on is about Bitcoin. And this might be due to big companies like Block One with EOS or maybe Tron investing a lot of money in their marketing departments and trying to drive up adoption. So how much of SXSW was about Bitcoin? So not a whole lot of South by Southwest was about Bitcoin. Now, I didn't attend every keynote and I didn't go to every everything, but they invited us as uh, as we also have a podcast, the Crypto Basic Podcast, and we, we went down and uh, we kept trying to check out the interesting panels. Like there, we would go to a, a panel talking about the role of blockchain in taking care of poverty. And what we found was two of the four panelists were shilling their project. One of them actually had a lot of interesting things to say. His, his name was uh, Vinay Gupta. He was uh, part of the original development team on Ethereum, but I know this is a Bitcoin podcast, so I'm going to stay away from that. But nobody was a Bitcoin uh, developer, nobody was a Bitcoin you know, shill or supporter or anything like that on that panel. Uh, the governance panel had nothing to do with Bitcoin. And the only real direct correlation to Bitcoin that I found there at this conference was there were posters on all of the, uh, like the columns and stuff that had the Bitcoin logo that said, if you listen to music, you get free Bitcoin, which I just assumed was a scam. I mean, I never looked into it. I did take a picture of it. I can't remember the name of the service, but Anytime I see something like that, I'm like, eh, um, yeah, I'm good. I don't, I don't know if I want to look into that, but it could have been a thing. I don't know. Uh, but they, definitely Bitcoin was underrepresented as far as its market cap. But also, you know, I've been to a bunch of conferences. I've spoken at a couple. And the, again, the caliber of guests was not particularly high. And the panels were all about, like, what's the next big thing in blockchain and stuff like that, rather than, I don't know, exploring it for the way it is. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when most of the people in attendance are potential investors. And sometimes they're also finance people coming from various firms. And they get there specifically to find out something that can bring them a lot of money. As opposed mm-hmm. to having an audience which consists of enthusiasts and academics and people who are actually interested in the developments and the technology. And you have reminded me of a conference which I attended last year in London. And I'm not going to complain because I basically got there for free. I didn't have to worry about anything. I was paid to report on the specific conference as my employer at the time was one of the organizers. But it was interesting to see how the opening act had one guy who went on stage and said, the next big thing in mining is Zcash. You should stop mining Bitcoin. It's not profitable. 
they're going to have uh, having uh, rewards. So you should just stop mining Bitcoin and get into Zcash because you see Zcash has these advantages. And look, I have these graphs which show that you're going to get greater rewards. And it just went on and on and on about why Zcash is the better coin to mine. And in my mind, I was looking at it thinking it's not even the best of the privacy coins. <laughs> yeah. Most of its users have no idea how to conceal their transactions. So they use it on exchanges and they use it basically in the same way that you use Bitcoin. It's transparent. It can be seen on the public ledger. They don't pay extra to have their confidential transactions or shielded. I'm not sure what they call them in Zcash. Yeah, it's something similar to, to that. It's in a default, not private state, which has always been weird to me with the privacy coins. Like you want it just being deciding, hey, I'm going to make this private already signals that there's a reason that you're making it private, right? So that that in and of itself is non-private. Not that they've got privacy incorrect. I think, I mean, zero knowledge proofs probably work. I don't know. I've never really, I'm not a developer, but it seems like, you know, people seem to say they do. I don't know, but... Yeah, Zcash is not uh, part of my portfolio in any way. Well, they, um, to my knowledge, they don't even have some kind of coin join system like Bitcoin does. And it blows my mind that there, there's so much money in this industry. And you have coins that are worth billions of dollars, but you have such bad wallet implementations. And you also have very few knowledgeable developers and I'm, I'm mostly speaking of altcoins, but also Bitcoin projects that never get the proper funding to actually grow. Yeah, so it's kind like of interesting People who invest in these don't really care about the technology and how it's going to evolve and grow over time. They, they're just in for a quick buck. It's all about short-term gains and that's it, some kind of speculation. Nothing excites me more than the technology behind everything, what it has the ability to change and why it could change it. You know, every, everything that I've done since I got into the space podcast or otherwise has always been about the technology. I, I couldn't even tell you what Bitcoin's price is today. I couldn't tell you the price of any of the coins in my portfolio. I couldn't even tell you what the price of my total portfolio is because I just don't check it very often. I am more interested in learning about the things that are going on around it and I think it, it kind of sucks that Bitcoin is harder to develop on because they don't have any sort of a war chest that they can give to, they, they can just give away to people. And, you know, there's, they're still coming up with some amazing things. Like the Lightning Network, if you really think about it, is a really awesome innovation. And it's, it was an innovative way to solve a problem that was always going to rear its head, I think. Like the, and not the problem of the block sizes, but the problem of, eventually one group of people is going to say, I signed up for this. And the other group of people is going to say, I signed up for this. And they're going to come to a head and be stuck in the middle. And you've got to find some sort of a compromise. And to me that, that, you know, something like the, the lighting network is awesome like that. And um, you're, I, you, we're going to see all kinds of interesting innovations on top of Bitcoin or other projects uh, at, all the way until we're dead. So, um, I'm interested to see where it goes because I don't I don't see any doubt in my mind that the future is around Bitcoin 
and it's tough for, you know, you talk to these random uh, fund managers in the United States that control billions of dollars and they tell you, oh, crypto is just a fad. It's not going anywhere. Uh, look at it. It was a bubble that popped in value. Well, uh, if you ask somebody in Venezuela what they think about Bitcoin, they're going to be pretty happy. So that, that's where that's where it starts. You're not going to stop any. Nobody's going to use Bitcoin over PayPal here now, but not in the United States anyway. Are they going to use Bitcoin over whatever alternative PayPal they have in a very small country in Africa? Of course. So it's going to be really cool to see it come come and start gaining traction from the places that the rich people don't think it's going to gain traction from. Yeah, and what's so exciting about Bitcoin is that there is so much coming up. By the time we will be posting this podcast, as I have this season format, and I have to fill in every spot before I release all the episodes all at once, like Netflix. But by the time that I will be posting this, I guess we will have some, some kind of proposal for Schnorr signatures in Bitcoin. And we have waited so long for such a long time to have Schnorr signatures because they were patented and we had to wait for patents to expire. And basically, we are going to have the transaction outputs being merged together to get better confidentiality and privacy. And also, they're going to take up a smaller amount of data in the blocks. So it blows my mind when I think about it that instead of having bigger blocks, we're going to have smaller transactions. So the same one megabyte blocks or two megabytes with SegWit are not going to be filled as easily as they were before, just because the efficiency of the data output is getting better. Yeah, and that's going to continue to happen. I mean, look at, look at your computer. You can put on an SD card the size of your finger the data that it, that it would have taken you an entire room to fill up not that long ago. The solution wasn't let's put 17 floppy disks in a computer. It was let's come up with a better way of reading data off the floppy disks so that we can put the data on something that's not as inefficient as a floppy disk. The floppy disk was the best that was available at the time. That didn't mean that the option to put 17 drives on your computer was a good idea. So it, that's one of my favorite kind of, I don't know, that's a metaphor or a comparison or whatever. I'm sure I saw it in a meme somewhere. But that is, that's, to me, that's super easy to see. And when you go into the, like, Bitcoin block size debate, I'm, I've gone through a little bit of a paradigm shift. When I first started, to me, I was like, well, wait a minute, that's faster and it's better and it's cheaper. Let's go with that one. I didn't understand the network effect that Bitcoin has as an advantage over just about everything else. Um, my, my, if you go back and listen to my early podcast, I've said some real dumb stuff about Bitcoin and I've completely changed my mind on that entirely. Uh, the, the network effect is the most important thing on these coins and it will continue to, or the projects or coins, whatever you want to call them, it'll continue to be the most important effect because e even coins as big Ethereum classic got 51% attacked and it was, I don't know, it had it was 13th or something in overall market cap. They, they were as pretty big coin with a lot of developers behind them, and they were easily attacked. So that's why it's so important when money's at risk that a system becomes kind of, 
I don't want to say conservative because that's got this weird connotation now of being like when you're talking about politics, but, but conservative is in like, if we put this implementation in, what are the different effects of this thing that we're putting into the system? How can they, what are they going to do in 30 years? Because we're talking about a lot of money and a lot of value. And if we put something in that screws it up, well, you know, we need, we need to know, we need to test, we need to make sure we're doing the right thing. So um, I think 15 years from now, the, the, the idea that putting just bigger blocks on there was the answer is going to be kind of laughable, but maybe not. I could be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong and all that stuff. So uh, I guess maybe none of us are technical, but I, I want to just acknowledge your contributions. And I forgot to say this in the introduction, but you are the host of the Crypto Basic podcast, which makes this a crossover episode that we can both upload for our shows. And maybe that you can release this and it helps me send out a teaser for the second season of the podcast. And it's yeah. great when we get together and we exchange experiences because I guess the main point of us doing podcasts is to learn from other people. I don't think it's about having a thousand or a hundred thousand listeners and becoming popular and whatever. It's just a personal project as a way of fulfilling some kind of curiosity that we have and an intrinsic pursuit of knowledge and maybe networking. Yeah. I like the networking aspect. I love meeting the interesting people that are involved in this, in this space. I love what happens when you're at a conference. I love the, um, the camaraderie there. And I like when I'm, you know, wearing my, you know, my crypto basic t-shirt that why we have podcast t-shirts. I don't know. It's not like, it's not like it's a normal startup company where we're making any money. We've lost thousands of dollars on our podcast because we're too lazy to edit our own episodes and we pay an editor. But the, <laughs> if I'm at, I just happened yesterday. I was getting a, I was getting a taco and I was checking out and the guy looked at my shirt and the Bitcoin logo is inside of like a microphone for our logo. And he's like, Oh, big, you, you know about Bitcoin. And he starts to talk to me and we, we chat for a little bit about, about Bitcoin and it was really cool. He, he takes a card and he's excited to see the podcast and Hey, maybe he's even listening to this right now and he's remembering, Oh my God, you got a taco for me. That's great. And that's the kind of interesting thing that I like to see. And I like to see it in that way and not the way of, Hey, that's that guy that told me to buy that ICO and I lost all my money because nothing could be further from the truth. When you talk about what we say on our podcast, we are very, very, very much like we, we say we like, you know, a project here. We say we like a project there, but like I said about, we don't know, we don't know anything about the prices and we actively tell people you can't beat the markets, you know, stop trying to follow crypto YouTubers. If anybody actually knew how to properly beat the Bitcoin market, they would not be posting that advice on YouTube for free. So if we were here for the downloads, we would uh, we would have quit a long time ago, and and I'm sure you would have too because the downloads fell with the with the market. Yeah, I guess it's good that we got into this kind of territory because I tend to be kind of agnostic when it comes to technical analysis. I see a lot of people drawing charts and trying to predict where it's going to get, but whenever it seems way too predictable, it turns out to be the other way around. So I don't believe in this kind of patterns and beliefs that when 
it goes that way, then it's going to form that kind of shape and it necessarily should go that way because I don't know, maybe that there are bots involved to some extent. And I'm sure there are a lot of people create bots to maximize their profits. But I don't think it's that easy. If it was that easy with analyzing, and sometimes I watch Tone Vase. I think he's the best in the game in terms of understanding what goes on. And he worked at Wall Street, so he must have learned something. I don't watch people like, I don't know, there, there's a YouTube channel, which I sometimes watch just because they mention some of, some of our news articles from Crypto Insider. And the name of the channel is Crypto Daily, or no, Altcoin Daily or something. And sometimes the guy looks at charts and tries to explain what's going on. And I tend to not believe in any of this. I yeah, personally don't believe if there was that, if it was so easy to predict the market, then everyone would make a lot of money, which doesn't really happen. When you see stories about people becoming millionaires from trading Bitcoin, then you're going to see a thousand other stories about people losing thousands of dollars, trying to make some kind of gains and selling at the bottom after buying at the top. You see that in any industry, the survivorship fallacy is really out there with, with anything. And even in your standard Wall Street or your or whatever uh the commodities markets or anything like that. You'll hear the story about these guys called the turtle traders that were the first ones to try to follow trends and they would, they made money and then you don't hear any of the stories about any of the other people that try to do what they did and they lost. I do, I haven't watched a lot of tone based stuff, but when he was on Doug Polk's show and I, I watched Doug Polk because uh, I thought Doug Polk was the best poker player in the game when he was playing and he was thinking about the game on a different level than everybody else, but he was putting a lot of time in. And he, he bet Tone Bay's uh, $10,000 that Bitcoin would never drop below $6,000 again. Um, and, you know, that was, and, and Tone Bay's was very, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't even think it's close. And he specifically talked about why he thought that. I don't know if he has a good method or whatever the case is. I'm sure there is some self-fulfilling prophecy in the technical analysis field where if everyone looks at a chart and sees a certain pattern or everyone that likes to be a technical YouTube analyst, they see a certain cat pattern or Bart Simpson or something, whatever they're called, and they all see the same signal and they're like, okay, that means we have to buy. Then if everyone's buying, then the price is going to go up and organically because everybody saw that same signal. So maybe there's a little bit of that to it. But if you look at the experts, the experts, I'm putting up air quotes here because you can't see this, that decide, hey, we're going to make a Bitcoin price prediction. <laughs> and then you, you take that, you know, you give it a couple of years and you take their predictions and you put them on a chart. Nobody's even close. They're spread out just as you would expect them to be spread out on, on a graph, <laughs> standard deviations and everything. And like a couple of people get it right. And then now guess what? Everyone thinks they're the experts because they were the ones that got it right. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of weird to look at, especially when, you know, I, I assume like you do and I do, you think that Bitcoin is a good investment and 
that's why I've chosen to put more money than anybody reasonably should, like as far as percentage of my net worth, I'm not that rich, but into, into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't care. I don't look at the prices. I'm fairly certain in five or 10 years that I'm going to have more fiat value in that portfolio than I do today, but I could be wrong about that too. I have no idea. So you have to be able to take that risk. And if you think you know better than a, than a computer algorithm can, and that's the thing that no one's ever been able to give me a good answer for other than the self-fulfilling prophecy, nothing I've seen in technical analysis couldn't be programmed into a computer, at least as far as what little exposure I have on, on crypto YouTube. I don't know. There's, I look at that and I'm, I'm not a computer programmer, but I think if they can say, Hey, this line and this line intersect, it means buy. That's not even that advanced of a thing to program into a computer. I'm pretty sure. So I don't know. Nobody's ever been able to give me a good answer as to why a trader can outperform an algorithm. In my mind, it's like trying to predict the weather. And you try to look at the clouds and you say the wind is, blow, is blowing in that direction. So these two clouds are going to meet, meet at some point and it's going to rain. But it doesn't always happen. There is always a chance to be wrong about it because the nature of it, and in this particular example, we are speaking of modern nature, is unpredictable and there is no way to actually tell that something is going to happen. But we as human beings tend to have this kind of hot hand fallacy. When somebody gets something right multiple times in a row, then we believe that they, they are gifted in a certain way and they, they are able to see something that we are not capable of. And that you see that in Wall Street funds all the time, mutual fund managers that outperform the market, especially the ones that outperform it the most, invariably in the next few years have a mean reversion and they perform under the market. And the the fallacy behind uh, behind a mean reversion is also kind of annoying too because I say they had a mean reversion and now you think okay because this person got they outperformed the market by three times, that means they're guaranteed to lose next year. No, they could keep outperforming the market. But when you would, when you look at that stuff, when you look at the data and you look at it backwards, you're always going to see the mean reversion at some point. You just can't predict it. So um, just because a coin's come up tails 10 times in a row doesn't mean it's any more likely to come up heads. But that sometimes a coin will flip tails 10 times in a row. And that's what I believe the most profitable traders or the people who get the right prediction on the prices are actually doing rather than, you know, making good prediction. Now, can they make a more informed prediction? Sure. I would like to see people say, look, I think there's a 70% chance that Bitcoin will be above this price number, a 10% chance it'll be below this or whatever, just like they do with rain. But if you took a weatherman and you asked them, is it going to rain today or not? They wouldn't be any better at predicting the weather than a random coin flip because the actual act of raining is extremely unpredictable. So they give it a chance. They say there's a per, this percentage chance of rain today. And I, it's the same thing with everything. I mean, there's going to be blackjack players that never learned how to count cards and are, black, are lifetime winners at blackjack and think that they, you know, they, they know something about like the way the dealer winks at them or 
the or you know the um, if they spin around in their chair four times, maybe they won't go busto on the next card that they pull out. And for whatever reason, it works because the random chance is aligned with their confirmation bias. But they are in the long run going to lose just as likely as the person who's never had a winning session in their entire life at blackjack. So it's the I've been around gambling so much and I've seen so much of variance and stuff like that, that it sometimes you can see that and assign the wrong thing to it. You can think that you are smarter than the average person or that you've beaten a game that's unbeatable. And that's, uh, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a rake in poker. There's a rake in the casino games and there's a rake in trading. There are fees. Those fees add up. You have to be right so often for those fees to not actually start to pile on top of each other. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. And also, I was about to ask you if you ever went to a Bitcoin-specific conference in the last couple of years. I guess it was harder in 2017 to find any kind of Bitcoin-specific event, as at the time there was this narrative that Ethereum was the next Bitcoin, and there was to be some kind of flippening where Ethereum takes over Bitcoin because they were saying that there's nothing that Ethereum cannot do except that they overinflated their supply and they proved that they're not able, even with their central planning and all that foundation stuff, they're not able to actually fulfill their promises and deliver some kind of functional scalability in time. And at the same time, you had all these people who are going to conferences in 2018 bragging about how much money they made in 2017 and thinking that it's going to go on like that. Then again, it's about that hot hand fallacy, but also giving indirect advice to people in attendance to invest and maybe put some money into that promising little project from this obscure little place which happens to be a crypto haven like Malta or Singapore where startups are just able to go there and fork maybe Bitcoin or any other coin, add a couple of features to say that they have fixed the scalability problem and then shill it and brag about how capable and intelligent and able to promote the future of cryptocurrencies are? Well, I never went to a Bitcoin-specific conference. I have been to really bad conferences, and I've been to really good conferences. I don't share the, I guess, disdain for Ethereum. Uh, I think that there's going to very likely be a future where interoperability is important. Um, There are going to be things that Bitcoin is not particularly good at. And there are going to be things that other projects are not particularly good at. Um, but the, the end result is either Bitcoin will end up being, end up adopting and becoming better at those, or they're just not going to be used for everything. Do you need every little transaction at Starbucks to be on the blockchain and be immutable? Probably not. Do you, do you want your supply to be actually having a hard cap and not, uh, being inflationary, I don't know, maybe, probably. And there's a lot of different questions that are going to be uh, solved at some point as we go forward. So, but I don't think the answer is transactions per second. 
if the answer was transactions per second and that was all it was, then Nano or EOS or Tron would be king because they targeted their entire development towards whatever big transactions per second number is. And they forgot a lot of what was important along the way. And, uh, you know, in in EOS's case, uh, decentralization, they were just like, "Eh, you know, forget that. We don't need that anymore. We're we're just going to go with these. These guys over here can make decisions. And, uh, but don't worry, our transactions per second are really high. It's cool. So the, the development really took a weird turn. And in the end, I don't think you need that many transactions per second unless you're trying to run a decentralized exchange or something like that where you need to have – nothing can scale to the point where a decentralized exchange would work right now, even – the, those coins that can do thousands of transactions per second. That's nowhere near an, enough transactions per second if everything is going to be on the blockchain and not on some sort of side chain. So there's the, everybody focused on kind of the wrong thing when they were trying to improve Bitcoin. And, and there were people who are improved upon Bitcoin, not improve Bitcoin itself. People who are improving Bitcoin are succeeding in a reasonable manner. You know, depending, you can, you can make some semantic arguments about the lightning network and its centralization, but you also have to admit that the lightning network worked. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It made the transactions that are being used on the lightning network significantly easier. And people passed around the lightning network torch on Twitter. The, and the argument for the, it's not decentralized enough is interesting in and of itself decentralization seems like it's the answer. And, and this is from, uh, I heard this from Vinay Gupta and I love it when he was talking. Decentralization seems like it has to be the answer because all of our centralized systems are completely corrupt. So when we, we look at our centralized systems, we say, well, these are broken because they're centralized, so we need to decentralize them. Is it the answer though? Do you need everything decentralized? Because then you know what are what are you going to do about the two you know rednecks in Texas that decide to uh, put a bunch of carcinogens in the air in their backyard and what are you going to do to the city there how are you going to handle that so it, it's going to be an interesting road to the future where transparency in something like politics is super important or transparency for corporations is super important but at the same time the individuals need to control their rights and that's why the semi-transparent nature of bitcoin seems like such a good solution I think there is also this kind of theory which says that every altcoin is trying to experiment with a new technology that was not accepted to be built on top of Bitcoin. So they're conducting this large-scale public experiment which allows people to invest in it, to test its potential and scalability and virtues as a technology. So that it eventually, if it succeeds, it can become a sidechain in Bitcoin. And I've heard that discussion with privacy features. I know that there is a lot of work being put into bringing the Mimblewimble protocol into Bitcoin as mm-hmm. a sidechain. And they had Grin and what's the other one? Beam, which are pretty promising in themselves. They, they have very interesting technology they have a very small output in terms of bytes. They don't occupy too much space on the blockchain, and that's their 
attraction point, I guess. Because with everything else that came before confidential transactions, it, it was about like stacking together 50 other transactions. It was heavy, burdensome on the blockchain. And now you have something which is the exact opposite. It's groundbreaking in this regard. Also, let me think about something else. I think Blockstream is working on a simplified smart contract language that they're going to be using on their side chain, which is called Liquid. And they say that the language for it is so easy to understand and so easy to use that the instruction set can be printed on a T-shirt. I guess that's kind of gimmicky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know about that one, but that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah, I, I think it's called... Wait. Blocks. I, I got to look it up. It's very early in the morning here. And <laughs> it's hard for me to remember names. So Blockstream... Smart contract language. Simplicity. It, it was so easy. Simplicity. Yeah. Okay. It's actually brilliant that some people have looked into a simplified language for smart contracts. That's also meant to be easy to read, easy to write, and harder to corrupt. As when you have more instructions, it's more likely for the interpretation to be flawed, even when it's code. Mm -hmm. so, how, many, how many little issues with smart contracts have led to big problems in the, in the crypto space when you think about it? Oh, look at the Ethereum. You have millions of dollars being managed in smart contracts that sometimes are buggy. Mm -hmm. And there's also the issue of immutability in smart contracts. So right now, I don't think there is any way to edit any kind of provisions that you have in the contracts. Once you sign them, you have to follow the exact instructions that you have signed, even though there might be some parts that you disagree with in time, or there might be unforeseen consequences that you're not able to see when you sign the contract. And the consensus about it in terms of development is that you should have some kind of way to mediate. So to have a bipartisan or multi-stakeholder discussion and see how about we change this? Because that's also how it works in the real world. When you have contracts, you can amend them and change provisions if you agree with all the stakeholders involved. And that's going to be one of the big features when they bring this kind of, what should you call it, editing feature or amendments to smart contracts. That's something that they are working on right now, and I find it fascinating. And I, I know that at some point we're going to have smart contracts in Bitcoin that are not going to be Turing complete like Ethereum's, but they're going to be much more robust and more reliable just because the network is stronger. And if they're going to conduct it on sidechain, then they're not going to have any kind of scalability issues. Well, I, you mentioned that all the altcoins kind of are becoming sidechains to, to Bitcoin. 
I actually kind of see a future where that is accurate, but maybe the definition of sidechain is a little bit weird. Do they work with Bitcoin is the, is the question. And I think that one of the most important parts to the mass adoption is going to be interoperability, especially if different coins get adopted in different spaces. But when it all comes, when it all comes back down to like Bitcoin is, has put it like it would have to really mess up in order to do anything bad or as far as like, you know, gaining and losing the network effect, but it's already been through those, those tests. If Bitcoin was breakable, it would have been broken. Um, you know, the, the biggest um, reward in the world is there for anybody who can figure out how to, how to mine the, you know, either mine the blocks or find private keys or something like that. Uh, the rewards have been there on other projects too, which is why you saw the the hack with Ethereum and the the DAO, or something like the the Parity multi-sig wallet, where they just lost all these millions of dollars worth of funds into nothingness. So, so I think the while they may not agree on everything, and there may be lots of stalemates, that the Bitcoin developers tend to want to see the solutions before they implement them, and a lot of people just you know, fuck it, we'll do it live. And they, they push something out to their contract. And, you know, this guy, Justin, uh, whatever his name is from, um, from Verge, he, he grew up in like my town in Florida. This little, it was not a particularly special town. Nobody smart comes from there. I'm not smart. I came from there. Definite proof. But he, he accidentally hard forked his entire project because he like copy pasted some code and it didn't work. So there's so many like random things that happen and people are going to be frustrated by the speed that something like Bitcoin moves at compared to, you know, Justin Sun making an announcement of announcement every week and making it seem like he's got all these things super hyped and buying BitTorrent, which was never a profitable company as it was. So that's, that's why every time I get excited about everything else, I think back to Bitcoin and I'm like, well, how does this, how does this work? So I do get very easily excited about altcoin projects, but very few of them are now making their way into, I guess, past my, my bullshit sensor and into my, I forgot, I was not supposed to swear, but past my BS sensor and into my portfolio. So, uh, and the ones that do, I'm really interested in how they're handling governance because I'm not sure that one coin, one vote is the, is the way to do things or one mining rig, one vote or one, uh, one hash, uh, one vote or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call the equivalent on Bitcoin. Um, I don't even think that one person, one vote is necessarily the right way to do things. There's some weird mesh of democracy that we haven't found yet. Bitcoin hasn't solved it. Ethereum hasn't solved it. EOS hasn't solved it. it no country solved it as far as I can tell. There's some system where the group can make good decisions as long as certain checks and balances are in place and the game theory is thought out properly. So there, right now, every, every system can be gamed. That's why people always yell at Bitcoin about being centralized because there's the mining pools, right? Well, the mining pools game the system as in like the risk is too high for somebody to mine on their own. So they found the way to mine in pools. And they continue to change their incentives to get people to go to their pools so they have more influence over the network. Uh, if you look at something like EOS, where they've got a group of 20 people that just get to say whatever, yeah, it's fine. 
we'll give him his money back. It's cool. They didn't solve it either. There's no different, nothing different on EOS than there is in you know the Supreme Court. So the the gover- the governance and or the effect that blockchain distributed ledger technologies or Bitcoin specifically are going to have on uh, pol- on politicians or politics is going to be really 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 interesting to watch go down. And whenever some group of politicians makes the mistake of, sure, yeah, we'll use Bitcoin or something similar for our campaign finance, they're going to be in for a a rude awakening. Because I think a lot of times when a politician is doing something scummy, they don't think it's scummy. So when we can actually track down what the source of their their scumminess, it's going to be interesting. Oh, yeah. I noticed that there is that candidate for U.S. presidency. I think his name is Andrew Yang. Yes. And they found out about last week, and by the time this gets posted, it will be like last month or something. But they found out that he is a Bitcoiner, and he was tweeting about Bitcoin back in 2013, which is fascinating. It might be the first case when a candidate accepts Bitcoin as a donation, or it might be one of the many instances where you have politicians who forget about their roots once they go mainstream and they try to appeal to the largest number and be a person of the masses. I also think, what's his name, Beto O'Rourke or something? Yeah, the, from they, Texas. Yeah, they, uh, yep, the Texas guy, yep. Yeah, also him. He used to be part of that hacker group in the 90s. So he might know about Bitcoin. He might be involved in it. It's interesting when the generations change and you have this wave of young people, not necessarily young in the sense that they might be 20 or something, but they're still young and they come with fresh views and an openness to something new like Bitcoin. And it's going to be interesting to me to see how governments react when the technology matures and the adoption grows. As I don't think in the West there is a, an intrinsic incentive to seek some money. I tend to tell this joke that nobody really wakes up in the morning one day and says, you know what I need in my life? It's some money because I don't like the dollars <laughs> in my pocket. I don't like the way they allow me to buy pretty much anything in the world and people will happily take my dollars because they know that it's the leading currency. But in countries like you mentioned Venezuela and also Palestine, which is not even recognized with full rights by the international community, and you also have oppressed countries of the world or ones that are under trade embargoes or are part of political schemes that may be terrible for their sustainability. And I'm thinking of North Korea right now. I don't think we should be defending their regime. But at the same time, when they get into Bitcoin, they make a statement to the international community. It's a way of saying, we are avoiding your financial system. We're not willing to engage in the same game that you're playing. And there might be a point in the future where you'll feel obliged to trade with us 
whenever Bitcoin goes mainstream, if ever. Because I also have this conspiracy theory that U.S. government is trying to actively discourage use of Bitcoin because it's very much against their interest in terms of foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. So it's super arrogant for for the United people in the United States who deal in dollars to think that the dollar is always going to be the global reserve currency. It is now. And yes, it does. Because of that, it means that the dollar is the most stable fiat, probably, if you think about it in terms of stability. But we have, <laughs> we have the, the mass problem currently leading our country. And that problem isn't like, it isn't going away anytime soon. And that's corruption in politics. And people were so sick of it that their knee-jerk reaction to, to Hillary being kind of like the exemplification of corruption in politics was to elect a reality TV star that is one of the most corrupt people on the planet. So he, it's, I, I, not, I don't want to get too far into politics, but I'll talk about Andrew Yang really quick. I, he won't go very far as far as like getting any traction. He, he didn't have enough of a, enough of a following to get like a Bernie Sanders type effect. He's not really a Democrat. So because in the United States, we have two political parties, which is the dumbest thing I've ever seen because no, neither political party is ever going to represent my own personal uh, feelings. So Bernie Sanders is not really a a Democrat either. He's just running on the Democrat ticket because you have to either be a Republican or a Democrat in order to get elected. So Andrew Yang is very similar. He's, he's progressive. He wants universal basic income. And yes, he is very um, crypto friendly. Like he likes Bitcoin, which is cool. He was also at South by Southwest. Now I said South by Southwest crypto section was bad. Unfortunately, I only had a pass to the interactive platform because that's what they gave us for press. But I, I wish I could have gone and seen Andrew Yang talk. He is an, he is an interesting speaker uh, with, with very little chance to actually get anywhere. And the same thing with, uh, with Beto. He's, he's, he did the unthinkable and almost unseated a Republican in Texas, but that doesn't mean that he can actually do anything in the political landscape. But yes, it, back to actual cryptocurrency. I don't know why I'm talking about politics. You got me going off here. The, the arrogance that the U.S. dollar is going to always be the global reserve currency is something I see in so many people who just dismiss the idea of cryptocurrency or the idea that the United States is the greatest country in the world. And they, they're, they're missing it. They're burying their heads in the sand. And I would be very surprised if in 20 years we don't get our act together if uh, we are no longer the, the global reserve currency. It's like that right now. But we are being passed in just about every way um, by China. And why are we being passed by China? Because... Uh, authoritarian centralized regimes as long as they're not killing people kind of work in a much more efficient way than a democratic republic that has the sown seeds of hate that can't come to any conclusion or situation so much like bitcoin cash had to fork off of bitcoin because there was a because there Everything had come to a head, and there was, we need to do this, or we need to do this. I signed up for this. I signed up for this. Time to break. There's some, there's some break with our politics, and I, I wish Andrew Yang was the one to do it. Um, 
I, you know, as far as my political leanings, I'm just going to vote for whoever is not Donald Trump, which kind of sucks, but that's the, uh, that's the situation we're in. And I would love to see politicians be required to put their transactions with all of their donors on the Bitcoin blockchain. That would be the happiest moment of my life. Do we need to have every coffee purchased on the on the blockchain? No, but would I like to know that our president bought a picture of himself with charity money? Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. I would like to be able to see that real time and make fun of it on Twitter or whatever the case. So, yeah, but going back to the idea of a world reserve currency. I think US dollar was brilliant in its way of imposing and trying to come out as what should I present it? Uh, I'm not very good with words so early in the morning, but I know that there were moments when European allies were basically handing their gold reserves for dollars and they were being told at the time that there is always the possibility to get back their gold if they give if they return the dollars and then they abolished the gold standard and that was the end of it yeah. and I, I think the United States of America right now is sitting on the largest reserves of gold in the world and also in relation to China you have a larger military you have many more satellites being deployed and functioning in the space. So you basically own the planet. Nobody wants to go to war to, with you. And also, if you tell some something to your allies about conducting certain policies, they're not going to really think twice or rebel. So whatever happens in terms of diplomacy or international affairs in the United States, it's there's this saying that whenever the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's that's a great. I haven't actually heard that before, but we've got herpes at this point. Then because the, <laughs> I hope nobody else catches what we have. I, I really do. But you know what? You're right. The rest. Look at uh, look at Brazil. Brazil elected like you know Trump 2.0, and they. Could they have elected somebody like that without, without the, I guess, success? I, don't, I hate calling it success, but could they have done that without the success of somebody in our country? I don't know. And uh, we, um, the, the things that the United States does may not have survived if we weren't an imperialistic regime, which is sad. Uh, and the thing about gold, you know, the having all the gold in the world only matters if the world the world still wants gold. So I don't know how long gold is going to be the most important reserve thing that people covet, but I don't wear a single piece of gold jewelry. Um, I don't think my girlfriend does either. And I don't think it, I don't think it looks good. I don't need it. I'm not going to ever put it on, on a ring or, or anything like that. And I don't know if that's just me or if it's more my generation, but it, Gold is only as valuable as the people wanting it. And this is the same thing. You look at how could gold possibly lose its value, but at the same time, how could Bitcoin possibly have gained its value? It's the exact same on the opposite end of the coin. 
Bitcoin achieved its value because people wanted to trade it for goods and services. That's as, as simple as it gets. And there's an entire network backing it of people that have a vested interest and are spending money and creating it and mining it, or at least finding the blocks for it. The, the same thing happened for gold at one point, but is it always going to be that way? I, I mean, I don't think so. That Abolishing the gold standard was kind of a necessary move, and there's a reason the rest of the world kind of joined in on that. But gold is also extremely volatile. It's not, it's not that much less volatile than, than cryptocurrencies are, or Bitcoin specifically, because it's deflationary. And that's one of the, one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is it's deflationary, so I'm wondering if its value will ever settle. But at the same time, it can just be divided further down. So maybe that has a, an effect of creating more, uh, kind of creating more money. Not really. I don't know. It's tough. Qu- quantitative easing was, <laughs> was an interesting thing to, to watch happen. I didn't know much about politics then, and I, I only know about them now because I need to argue with my friends that, uh, you know, that might that might think that Bitcoin's a scam or something like that. So that's how I learned. And that's my favorite one. Bitcoin's a scam. <laughs> that That's the number one argument against it, right? Like they, somebody comes to you and they say, oh, Bitcoin's a scam. It's a pyramid scheme. And you have to take 45 minutes to four hours to explain to somebody why that's not even humanly possible. Like they, they, this, the way this works, it, there is a scam. Now people can use it to scam you. But, but the the protocol, the code itself being a scam is kind of hilarious if you understand how it works. I think I disagree with you in relation to gold and its value. I think in the history of humankind, there is no greater asset or kind of money that we had because it's expensive to extract from the ground. It has these qualities which allow no loss. So when you melt it into another shape or form, you're not going to have any losses. And it has been the main currency for trades for hundreds of years, maybe thousands. I've read articles by Nick Saba, which go back thousands of years to how people have perceived value. And it was always about scarcity. Nothing is going to ever have value unless it's scarce. It's hard to get. Mm-hmm. So if you have a limited supply of anything, then there is a greater incentive for people to put more value on it, if that makes sense. Give away many more of their disposable assets to have that. And scarcity works as a form of money just because it incentivizes people to get involved in trades and collaborate and have this kind of economic activity that is cyclical. Whereas the idea of inflating the currency just because you decide to do so as a central government and you have your central bank to print more money actually discourages economic activity. You can stop thinking of trade and thinking in terms of how do we make this reach people who maybe were smart at some point and they have made very good deals and they ended up holding a lot of money. How do we make them invest their money here in our community? 
it takes away that compo component and makes people rant at the government and say, why don't you inflate the currency and make their money worth less? But that's toxic for the entire society. If you think about yeah, it, no, I agree with that. we should have more ways to trade and we should think more in terms of how to engage in economic activity than to always wait for the government to somehow fix this mess. And I can understand the idea that it's easier to get out of recessions if, or depressions or any kind of financial crisis if you have this kind of currency that can be inflated. But at the same time, I think these benefits are not mm, big enough or weighty enough to just take away this component of scarcity. And that's why gold is always going to be valuable to us because we have established that there is nothing else that has all these qualities. It has all the qualities of sound money, maybe except for portability. It's very hard to carry gold and costs you a lot of money to get it across the border. And there is no way to run away with the gold reserves of a country unless you have some very good arrangements. But some people have tried. Oh, yeah, and they will keep on trying. <laughs> a lot of Romania's gold reserves were stolen by the Russians after World War II, and we never got them back. But that's a different kind of story. It's another rabbit hole. And I, I will also guess... right now in the middle of financial sanctions, and the rest of the world is trying to make them feel oppressed and make them lose a lot of money from their GDP and basically starve the population like they do in Venezuela right now, hoping that the regime will crumble. But Russia has a lot of resources and they, while they are in diplomatic war with the rest of Europe, they sell natural gas to everybody and they can negotiate deals which are actually in their favor and that's something that the United States will never like because Germany, for example, as the most powerful state in Europe, is hypocritical about its diplomatic stance. On one hand, they say you are the bad actors of our continent and we are going to punish you. And on the other, they negotiate deals for natural resources. But also Russia is stacking a lot of gold in the last few years they're basically buying a lot of gold every month, like billions of dollars worth of gold. And I think they're preparing for a collapse of the, of the financial system, where they're going to be the ones to create the new U.S. dollar and deliver to the world a, a kind of currency that they can trust. Or they're trying to build their own parallel economy and establish their own sphere of influence around the world and basically have this kind of Cold War 2.0 where you have parallel markets and parallel worlds which are not necessarily isolated from each other. You can still trade with the other side, but they're going to have a different kind of currency which has different values and maybe in time it's going to get more traction because they don't really need to finance huge military operations. So they don't print as much money as the United States do. And they might be in better relations to China. 
and they might attract Korea and other countries, which the United States is trying very hard to be in good terms with. And I know this is a Bitcoin podcast, and I'm going to get yeah. to the Bitcoin part. I think Bitcoin is revolutionary because it, it is politically agnostic. It doesn't care who uses it and for what purpose. And nation states that are actually smart in this regard can bypass this entire financial system, which comes back to the United States of America and whatever their foreign policy is. They can basically avoid all the sanctions and all the bureaucracy and all the processes involved and establish the kind of trade which is very much akin to having gold and storing it, except for the fact that you can send any amount worth of Bitcoin to the other side of the world for about, I'm not sure what the transaction fee is right now, but it's about 10 cents during this market. Yeah. There, there was a period where it was cheaper to send gold than it was to send a Bitcoin, but those days are gone. Well, it depends I on the amount because gold becomes more expensive to send if you get a larger supply of it. So if you have like a thousand bars of gold, yeah, that's true. Then you're going to pay a lot of people and you have to pay insurance. You have to make sure that the people handling it are trustworthy. And I'm not even sure who has a thousand bars of gold. Well, as we just established, Putin has at least that. So the um, it, it, I just remembered making that comparison. Then it was obviously it was a small period of time where that was true. Where it was like fifty U.S. dollars worth of value to send a to send a Bitcoin transaction, at least to send one that had any chance of going through. Um, and at the time, that was one of the things that I would say is like I'm like, oh, Bitcoin sucks because of this, and it did. It did for like a month. There it was just not very feasible as a as a currency it was only feasible to store value i want to uh, clarify first my position on the gold could i say gold could lose its value not that i think it is uh, i have a friend who is very high in the gold financial industry does a lot of commodities trading and he has an entire firm built around just kind of acquiring gold right and i told him that we had a lot in common i'm like you know you and i are probably making our investments for the same reasons and he thought i was insane until I broke it down to him, just like you did there, where I was like, you know, here's the reasons behind why you're investing in gold. And I didn't break it down as elegantly as you did, but it was, it was close. And the and then I said, and here's the reasons why I think that, that Bitcoin is, a, or cryptocurrency is a solid investment. And neither one is a solid investment in a utopian world where we're all getting along and this, uh, all of our economies are working correctly. That's the overarching thing that is that that definitely scares me when I go to think about it. Like everything you just said there, Russia's positioning itself, North Korea's positioning itself, China's positioning itself. The United States has a, has a president that uh, is positioning himself on the toilet so he can be on Twitter. Like we, I'm hoping that there are other people behind the scenes making political machinations. But honestly, I don't I don't see myself living in the United States for very much longer. I have the ability to go get Irish citizenship. I probably will, so that I'll be a European Union citizen. And I will be able to just kind of be outside looking in and seeing that dumpster fire go down. But 
Um, it's super scary when you start to think about all the different possibilities and all the different futures that can play out. And universally, you will find people that say we're headed for disaster. Now, there 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 are people that are that are saying those people who are saying we're headed for disaster are wrong. But there aren't a lot of people out there that I've come across that are saying we're headed for this golden age of prosperity with our global economy. Like it's always kind of this doom and gloom scenario. Like when's it coming crashing down? We're we're doing all these things that are kind of signaling towards it crashing down, right? We're making regulations a little bit looser. We're allowing corrupt practices to happen over the course of global globalization. So. Bitcoin is important because you need to have an option. You need to be able to put this in your own hands. You need to be able to see uh, Nicolas Maduro and say, yo, this guy is crazy and he's going to completely sink this country. I need to find a way to protect myself and I'm not allowed to buy the U.S. dollar because there's a sanction. You you know, I, I've been to uh, Havana, Cuba a couple times and I can only imagine if the if the citizens of Cuba had access to any cryptocurrency in the sixties, when the United States was just crushing them for whatever reason, um, we would have been in a much different scenario because the wealthy people could have continued to stay wealthy and be outside of the the social state. But that would have been an interesting experiment. Um, the fact that we can see some people being saved by the ability to buy cryptocurrency in Venezuela, and it doesn't matter if they ban crypto, if, if they ban Bitcoin, Venezuela, it, it, Venezuela, I use the B there for some reason, Venezuela, it doesn't matter because somebody's mining it in China, somebody's mining it in the United States, their their network lives on. If, some, if the rest of the world says you're not allowed to accept the Venezuelan uh, currency, then you know, it's not like somebody can be in their basement and mine for you and make it so that you can create your transactions. So Bitcoin is the necessary alternative and it may not ever be mainstream. I think it will, but right now it doesn't have that chance because I, every time I send a Bitcoin transaction, I'm scared out of my mind. I'm going to do something wrong and lose all my money. Um, and, and I know what I'm doing. So the people who don't know what they're doing are going to be completely intimidated. So it's not anytime soon, but but at some point, one of these countries, like God forbid, North Korea, that made a good investment in in Bitcoin may position themselves as more of a, a world power. And it, and it's another example of talking about North Korea, Kim Jong Un making a rational decision, even though he appears completely irrational to the outside world. So um, it's. There, there's this weird dichotomy there where they're either a cult and he's the cult leader and he's about to do something crazy or he's thinking completely rationally and he's not going to do anything crazy. And I don't know which one it is. And I don't think anybody knows which one it is, but he did bring Dennis Rodman there. So who knows? <laughs> um, but Russia is also, yeah, you said you mentioned Russia. I know that they are reasonably crypto friendly. I also remember there being some funny fake news coming out in the crypto sphere where they said Russia is going to subvert us sanctions with cryptocurrency. And really all it was, was like this bot on Twitter that posted it three or four times. And then the news outlets took it and ran with it. And we, we talked about that on our show. We, we have this segment called bullish or bullshit where we will talk about the title of a pro of a 
of a piece. We'll be like, okay, uh, we got this one from Cointelegraph, and here's what they say. Here's the title. <laughs> is this what really happened, or is it a bullshit title and something else happened? And most of the time, the titles are sensational, and they're wrong, and uh, the world could use that too. But in crypto, it seems like it's even more because so many people have so much skin in the game, all these random little altcoins, and one little piece of news can drive their price up, and uh, we won't be seeing that much longer as more and more people adopt. But it's, a, it's definitely a bad taste in space in the meantime. But it doesn't happen to Bitcoin. You know, you're not getting any exchange listing articles about Bitcoin. Like, oh, Bitcoin just got listed on Coinbase Pro. Here comes the pump. So Bitcoin has matured past that point. Yeah, I think there are many points which I want to address. And I will start with the idea that I think you're giving too much credit to the presidency of the United States, as even though the person sitting in the White House is the de facto leader of the diplomacy and the commander-in-chief, you have this mechanism of checks and balances and you have secret services and all sorts of mechanisms which actually pursue a national interest that is greater than anything that is elected for a fixed amount of time. And in this regard, that's why the United States has succeeded as an empire and it's part of your constitution also to be a federation that is actually more decentralized than other countries. You have more autonomy. You have institutions that are able to take action even without the, maybe that they have pressure from the political side, but they can take action in the best interest of what they're doing, not in the best interest of whoever sits in an office. And also, I wanted to get into the part where Bitcoin has the potential to replace the US dollar as a reserve currency of the world only if the United States gives up on the dollar, which is not going to happen ever. You right. want to control the world. You don't want to just leave it in the hands of some obscure miners and people running their nodes in their homes. That's just batshit crazy when you think <laughs> about it. Just think about a nation state saying, we're not going to issue our own money anymore. So how about you pick up this project, which was started by this guy of whom we know nothing, which has these qualities and we have reviewed the code. It's okay. It's, it's all fine. Just figure out how you should... <laughs> go on and build an economy with that. But I think... We know a, exactly who Craig Wright is. Stop it. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> but we are able to basically talk to our governments and say, I don't like your decisions. I don't like what you're doing. So I'm not going to be using your currency anymore because I have Bitcoin. So unless you switch your decision-making process and work in my favor, then you're not going to earn a proper wage. You're not going to be able to collect proper taxes from me. I'm not going to spend in a system. I know that in the United States, you have no VAT. Here in Romania, when you buy anything from any shop or any business or 
if you just conduct any kind of economic activity from a business and you, you get like um, a receipt when you buy something, so it's issued on a ledger that you have bought it officially. It's not on the black market. It's not on the green market. It's official. But you pay 19% to the state for anything that you're buying. So Man. they get all that money just because we are consumers and they can build economies all around this idea that if we get bigger wages, then we're going to spend more money. So they're going to collect more money which is irrational and it's crazy when you think about it, that if people stop buying whatever crazy stuff they don't need, then the whole economy is going to collapse and they're not going to be able to collect taxes properly. But anyway, <laughs> if you're able to use Bitcoin as a way of protesting against your government and saying, unless you're going to be legitimate and act in my best interest, I'm not going to use your money. That's a very powerful tool that we have right here. And it's important to preserve its decentralization, at least in technical terms. So you have the kind of mining pools that are not able to take the 51% majority and potentially attack the network. You distribute these mining operations all throughout the world so no single jurisdiction can take down the operations, and also make sure that people run their own nodes. Because I've heard a very brilliant analogy from a guy on Twitter, and his name is Melik or something. He's from Armenia, and he's a developer of some sorts or a computer scientist, also an artist in the Bitcoin space. And he said that miners create the future and they're like the researchers of a nation and nodes basically agree on the past. So you have the historians who agree on the correct version of the future by reviewing all the data. And then you have researchers who continuously write history and they pass it to the nodes to validate it, to, to acknowledge that it's all right. So if we are able to maintain this system of consensus and maintain Bitcoin as decentralized as possible, then we are going to give these governments a hard time. We're going to be like the cowboys of whatever era that we're living in, like yeah. digital era cowboys or something, outlaws. You're going to be like the Billy the Kid who didn't use the US dollar, but switched to Bitcoin and convinced a thousand <laughs> other people to take Bitcoin as opposed to accepting dollars for whatever they were selling. And that's going to build a huge market of people just being ecstatic about the idea that nobody can take away their money. Nobody can overinflate it. It's going to get more valuable over time as there's this effect of scarcity, which if it meets a high demand, then you're going to hold an asset, which is very precious. So in one sense, I can see how this is scary. The idea that you're holding onto an asset that is limited in its supply. 
you have no idea what's going to take place in 2140 when the last Bitcoin gets mined. So you're going to have like the world gold reserve, but digitally, except that with gold, you can still find some kind of resources lying in uh, an obscure country that was not part of the market up to this point. But with Bitcoin, that's it. And you have no idea. People gathering and stacking sats, like they're calling it right now, trying to get the highest amount of Bitcoins possible. And I, I know of a Romanian guy who owns about 600,000 Bitcoins. And that's crazy. Wow. These wow. people are going to be like the new Rockefellers or something. Yeah. I, you know what? I wonder if there was a point when we were starting to really use fossil fuels and that kind of thing where the, the kind of visionary people had the knowledge were like, no, we need to get the most amount of oil that we possibly can because this is the future. And, and everybody else laughed at them. They're like, what are you talking about? You burn candles with it. Like, you don't need to do it. What are you talking about? And they, uh, and then they ended up being the Rockefellers. That's kind of crazy. Um, the, <laughs> I, it, the dollar is the last thing that, that Bitcoin is going to replace, you know, currently it's not really replacing anything. It's, I, I never think about it as a replacement, but I think about it as an alternative, which is exactly what you're saying. Like if there's less confidence in the government and it's easy and people are willing to do so to move to Bitcoin and say, okay, well, my government's not doing what I want, so I'm going to move to Bitcoin. It would be nice if we could do that with our votes. It would be nice if the, the president could do something stupid and we could take the vote away from them in a liquid democracy where now all of a sudden our vote is pointed at Bernie Sanders because of this, and now he comes into office, but it's not practical. And our, our constitution is cool, is decentralized, and it's nice. But um, you mentioned that I gave the president too much credit. I definitely do. I, I, I tend to think about what he's doing to the perception of the United States rather than the... the um, rather than the actual physical policies that he's able to put into place. I feel like the perception that we were able to get to where we are now is worse for our economy, just like the perception of Ethereum being the next Bitcoin was, uh, was important for their economy is, is there because, but that's, I have no real, I have no degree or any real reason to think that. Um, I can't, I can't wait to see what happens when, when, when there is kind of a an easy way for people to to get Bitcoin that doesn't require the technical knowledge, and it'll get there. It, it's not there now, but <laughs> when I was in one of these panels at South by Southwest, there, one of the guys on the panel clearly didn't know his audience, and he said he was he was shilling whatever project he was shilling. Right, and he, he asked the audience, "How many of you have ever heard of TCP/IP?" And like every hand goes up, right? And because he's this is a crypto keynote. Like there's people, everybody knows what TCP IP is. And he's like, oh, wow, well, I wasn't ready for that. Can't believe everybody raised their hand. Um, we don't need to know what TCP IP is to understand the internet and how it works and, and how the protocols interact with each other. All I know is that when I click on my little bookmark button, it takes me to my favorite page that I go to every day. I don't need to know the, the inner workings of how that works or, what the encryption's like or anything like that. And that's the exciting piece of the future where I can simply go to my bank account and say, man, the U.S. is screwing up today. I'm just going to take this and put it over here. 
in the in the Bitcoin. I'm just gonna leave it there until they stop doing stupid stuff. Or yeah, you know what? <laughs> uh, I, I'm in Russia and I think we're about to do something stupid. We do the same thing. So uh, and as of today, as of this moment, and as of the rest of the foreseeable future, Bitcoin is the most likely to do that. It always will be the most likely to do that, even even with other other projects coming along and claiming to be the the new future each time. The the most likely to get the philosophical reason behind cryptocurrency being created and why we want to keep it going is Bitcoin, in in my opinion. And and it's not IBM's decentralized ledger. It's not EOS. It's not Tron. It's not any of that. And maybe it will be. Maybe I'm going to sound really stupid when I listen to this podcast in five years and I'm like, man, green coin, I should have known that was going to be the one. But <laughs> the because yeah, just as much as I sound stupid two years ago when I was talking about you know, the fact that Bitcoin needed to get its act together and all this stuff. We, we're all going to mature, but I, I'm hoping the world matures towards something like Bitcoin, if not Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is decentralized and has the ability to create or at least lay the groundwork for a one world government in 300 years or 400 years. When they look back at the history books, they're going to see, or the history files, I guess, books. When they, they see the the beginnings of the the one world economy and the the one world unification and hopefully we're kind of going to get along and get past tribalism at some point and then we're all using the same currency and that'll be even if it's not bitcoin bitcoin laid the groundwork for it and that's the that's the key part in my opinion i don't think bitcoin is that global in its scope it just relies on the idea that you are from a country which is democratic and allows you to surf the internet and use whatever websites you want. You are able to acquire the kind of equipment that you need. I don't see how people in North Korea are able to get engaged in the Bitcoin economy. I don't see how people in Cuba are incentivized to participate. I know that until 10 years ago or something, they were not even able to purchase personal computers in their homes. And it yeah. was, it was a huge They still can't even get internet. Yeah, their internet is just a couple of email services that are also surveilled by their government. So yeah, Bitcoin the, relies on these values of the free world that's why I think about it as a very American experiment. And when I think about conspiracy theories like Bitcoin being some kind of CIA project, I think if this was an experiment by the CIA, then it went way out of hand. And that's way beyond anything that they can do to control it. And that's great because it just proves that it can be decentralized. and demonstrates that human beings have a natural tendency and desire to look for the kind of money that will not lose value in time, as opposed to the dollars that you have in your pocket. I think your, your greatest incentive with these devaluing currencies is to spend it as fast as you can 
and get rid of it and buy the kind of asset that actually has the potential to become more valuable in time. And I'm not just speaking of Bitcoin right now. I'm thinking of collectibles. You're going to be mm -hmm. incentivized to think, where should I put my money right now to make sure that 10 years from now, I'm going to hold on to something that actually has more value. And the money that I could be holding in the bank account, and it has gotten to the point where the return that you get from holding your money in a deposit account, or what's it called, the interest, the interest rate is so low that it doesn't cover the inflation. Yeah, not even close. And, and that's with relatively low inflation. But I will say that I'm very good at spending my money. I make sure that my bank account is almost always at zero. So I make sure, you know, wait, that's the, I'm very good at that part. So whether I'm creating a, whether I'm getting collectibles or Bitcoin, eh, we don't need to worry about that, but I'm good at having a zero balance. I'm definitely good at that. <laughs> um, it, just speaking of Cuban internet, it's, it's, I've been there so many times. It's gotten better, uh, but the, it's to, it costs $2 an hour to use their internet and it fill up speed. And that is, you have to buy these little scratch off cards from the government where they use like these portals. And because of Cuba, I'm banned from Coinbase. <laughs> I, uh, I logged on just kind of muscle memory. I was in a little hotel lobby in Cuba and I had a wireless card and I was like checking my email or something. And then I'm like, Ah, let me log on to <laughs> let me log on to Coinbase and see what's going on with crypto today. And I immediately got banned and never got unbanned from Coinbase because their support is so poor that I was never like I went back and forth with them for months and eventually just gave up. I'm like, all right, well, I don't care that much to use Coinbase. I guess you know they won't sponsor the podcast, and I'll just <laughs> I'll just I'll just move on. But I think that there is some sort of non-zero movement towards cryptocurrency in Cuba. And I think that, that these places like China and, and Cuba that have restriction on their internet are not going to be able to keep that restriction that much longer because in theory, the internet is a decentralized system itself and attempts to control that are only as good as the systems that are controlling them. So if the people are able to create ways around it and then, you know, there was that, there was a documentary with the, the, there was like a girl in China where she was trying to live off of Bitcoin for a certain period of time. And she was actually able to do it, even though it's completely illegal to use it in a transactionary way, or at least it was at the time. I don't know if it still is, but that was, uh, that was, that was cool to watch. And I, I think of it as global. And it's interesting that you called it a, a United States experiment because one, I don't think the CIA is. Uh, advanced enough to think of something that cool, but two, I think of it as an experiment that, or or an experiment, or an item, or something that is more important for the rest of the world. Because again, I think the United States as a whole is going to be the last one to adopt that because of, of or, or to start using it because of a the the global reserve currency being the dollar. B, we have access to so many easy ways to send each other money. So unless you deal with uh, people overseas like we do. We have to pay our, when we send money to our editor, it's like 2% extra. And he's edited enough of our episodes where I'm like, dude, you don't want to take Bitcoin yet? Like, I would love to send you Bitcoin for editing our episodes. Uh, but if you're still not, if you're still not on board, I guess I can't really 
you want dollars, I'll send them. I'll send them on PayPal and I'll keep paying the extra. But I'd really rather send you Bitcoin if you could do that. But he hasn't, uh, he hasn't gotten onto that yet. He lives in Greece. And actually, no, he just moved to Germany. But uh, he's, he's a good guy. I'm glad we found him as an editor. Oh, yeah. Make sure you praise him. But it's interesting that he lives in Greece and doesn't believe in Bitcoin. As Greece has been through a very nasty recession, and there was a lot of disillusionment with the financial system in their country. As maybe that the general narrative in Europe is that they were very lazy and they still are. As during World War II, they were supposed to, after World War II, during the Yalta conference when you had Roosevelt and Stalin and Churchill meeting in Yalta, and they basically determined the fate of the world. They drew lines on the map and they said, this is going to be your side of influence because you want the war and this is going to be our side. That's when the Cold War basically began. And Greece and Turkey were supposed to be on the side of the USSR. But all the allies have paid a lot of money to keep Greece and Turkey. And Greece was this kind of spoiled child in terms of nation states. <laughs> they would get a lot of money, they would get a lot of tourists. It's a gorgeous country. It's really nice. And if you, if you have seen the movie Zorba the Greek, I think that kind of encapsulates the spirit of Greece. They are very relaxed and laid back and don't think too much about their finances and it's all about living in the moment and expressing yourself and not worrying too much about grown-up stuff. But at the same time, they had a very nasty recession less than 10 years ago, or maybe it was 10. I remember I was still in school and they had, they had to bail out their banks. And they had, I remember there was a time when they wouldn't allow their citizens to withdraw cash from the ATMs within a certain limit. So you could only, if you had a million dollars in your account and you're in Greece, <laughs> you're only able to take $10 a day to be able to buy food, but that was it. And yeah, to oh me, definitely, he told us some of this stuff and more. He's not happy with Greece at all. He, he's definitely getting out of there as fast as possible. He recognizes like how, how he just hasn't fully onboarded with, with Bitcoin. But yeah, that, Greece is a case study in, in, a, in an economy that took a dump and didn't completely collapse. But at the same time, like you said, they're, they're considered like the lazy piece of the European Union because they were bailed out by not themselves. They weren't bailed out by their own quantitative easing or any of that stuff. Like they, uh, the European Union was like, all right, here you go. So it's an, but it was also an interesting thing to see the European Union come together and make that choice and say, look, we're going we're gonna to help you guys. So that's another one of those steps toward the the one world, I guess, uh, economy. That I, I watch all kinds of science fiction, but Star Trek: The Next Generation is the piece of the future that I would really like to have happen, where they they're in post scarcity, they've eliminated any of the um, tribalism, and they're just they're, they're just humans, and they don't have to worry about money. Yeah, but. I don't think the act of bailing out Greece was so benevolent or some kind of goodwill just to help the nation because they are indebted. 
And when you indebt a country, you're basically controlling the politics in it. And you're going to put their politicians and make them accountable. You can call them anytime and tell them what to do just because they're in debt. And if they want to maintain a relative prosperity, then they're forced to cooperate. I guess that's what the World Bank is trying to do when you want to get ahead of the curve or keep up with the developing nations when you are a country which has very little resources and has no idea how to get into trade then you're going to get a loan from the World Bank. And interestingly, you're not going to get big businesses coming into your country unless you have a loan from the big bank, because that's a guarantee that you're obedient and you're going to have a stable kind of political regime that is predictable and allows these foreign businesses like Starbucks, McDonald's, and whatever. They won't come into your country unless you have a certain extent of democracy. And democracy is best maintained by international debts to the World Bank or to other countries that are allied to the United States. So by keeping the countries in debt, they're making sure that they're going to be partners on the long term. It's like giving a friend $1,000 as a way to make sure that you can call them anytime and ask them for favors. Except that with people, do the other thing. with people, it's harder to control them. But with nation states, you know that they are there. They have their governments. They have their organizations that are always there. There's always that territory. If you are United States, you can even open a news channel in that country and make the government look like it's illegitimate and working against their people and have this coup d'état against a government you don't like. And you're very good at that, by the way, the United States, regardless of the administration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't can... matter. Republican or Democrat, we're real good at fucking with other people's countries. I agree with that. Exactly. Just, uh, just look at Chile, I think, during the Pinochet era, when the elections didn't turn out the way you expected and you intervened. But Russia is even more terrible. When Russia doesn't like a leader, and that happened in Ukraine, they just kill them. And it's not like a public assassination or something. It's just like funny, but it's... they poison them. They yep. they throw acid in their faces. There was a an Ukrainian politician, Yushchenko or something, and he was running a successful campaign to bring democracy and get Ukraine in the European Union. And somebody during the campaign trail has basically thrown acid on his face and his face melted and he was looking like hell. And in the end, he gave up and had a lot of health issues. So they must have poisoned his food too. And he died within a year or something. And after this, there was his widowed wife who was trying to bring the change and continue the movement, but she was unsuccessful. With Russia, it's a lot worse, trust me. So in this relation of Americans and Russians, if the world is bipolar, I prefer the Americans just because they give you a fair trial, they can be more humane with you, and they give you the chance to express yourself, whereas the Russians, they they don't negotiate, they don't care. (laughs) To them, it's either their way or 
you can say goodbye to everything that you own or your reputation, your life, everything. And that's why I'm into yeah. Bitcoin, by the way, because I have a long, by my family line, I have a long history of confiscations or inflation or cases when they basically lost everything overnight. My grand-grandfathers were entrepreneurs and had these small businesses during the interwar period. And they lost everything when the communists came. The USSR took over Romania in political terms. We, we were never part of the USSR, but we were under their influence. And they came and they imposed their own government. And when that happened, they confiscated all property and they made it property of the state. So they lost everything overnight. All their work, everything that they ever owned, it, it just vanished. It was taken over by the state and it was turned into something else, which was collectivized and inefficient. And this whole experiment with communism has proven that when, when it be belongs to the state and everybody theoretically is an owner of something, then it belongs to no one. So everybody actually begins to become corrupt and steal. And when you have, in the 80s, Romania has had portions of food that we were allowed to eat. I, w I wasn't born at the time, but you had like a card. And according to that card, you're allowed to get this amount of bread, this amount of sugar, this amount of whatever. Every type of food was portioned. And no matter how fat or how slim you are, you are getting the same amount of food. And people were incentivized to get into illegal trading. And the baker was stealing some of his work, some bread from the bakery and trading with the milkman and trying to survive, basically trading milk for meat and doing all these black market exchanges. And after that, when the regime fell and my parents had their wedding a year before, they raised a lot of money and they were expecting to buy a car. And with the money that they would have been able to buy a car in the day of their wedding, they were only able to buy a couch a year later because of oh hyperinflation. So when you think about it, they had these savings and they wanted to, actually, it wasn't so easy to buy a car. You had to sign up to a list and then wait for a few months and then get a confirmation. And then they had to check to see if you're clean and had a clean slate and you could be trusted with a car. And after that, you, you're able to spend your money to buy one. But if you wanted to have that kind of money, you had to work about 20 years or something and even if you had your car, you're only able to drive it on certain days. So you had the license plates. And if the number was even, then you were able to drive it on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If the number was uneven, then you're able to drive it on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. It, it was a way to rationalize. That's what they were calling it rationalize consumption and reduce all the costs, but it ended up making people miserable and unhappy and longing for the kind of lifestyle that they were seeing in the United States during the Reagan era. 
and you had TV shows like Dallas. I'm not sure if you know Dallas. It was a huge no, I know. I've never seen Dallas, <laughs> despite living in Texas now. It was huge in Romania. Everybody was watching Dallas, and it was like a standard for how they should be living. There, it was like an expectations degree. They're looking at Dallas and thinking, we could be living like that if we didn't have these leaders. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a legi- as legitimate reason as any to get involved. And I've never experienced anything like that, nor is, nor is my family. And I guess I'm lucky in that sense. So it's super, um, I guess, tone deaf for me to complain about the United States. Sometimes like I do. But it, it, that we're not the only ones doing it right or doing it kind of right. Uh, you know, other people are getting it, they're getting it right. And there's, you reminded me of something that I, that I saw in, in, or heard in Cuba. Again, they're the closest thing I've seen to a completely communist society. So I, I, t- my Spanish is terrible, but I would talk to, I would talk to people there and I would ask some friends that were close enough to Spanish to give me some translations. I was interested in a couple of things. One that, Castro, when he was still alive, was still reasonably popular. It wasn't like they all hated him and they were trying to, they were waiting until he died to overthrow him or anything like that. They said to me, look, is everybody in the United States like President Obama? It was Obama at the time. And I said, well, no, it's, it's about 50-50. And I'm like, it's the same here. You know, the, some, some people like him, some people don't. And um, the other thing that, I, that was interesting was they said, when I noticed that they all had a side hustle. Everybody had this thing that they had to do on the side to make money. And most of the time it was illegal, illegal in the sense that, you know, yeah, you shouldn't be stealing cigars from the truck, but everybody does it. And I'm like, why is it so accepted to steal cigars from the truck? But yet when I walk around in this country, I feel completely safe. And they explained that, look, the government pretends to pay us because basically the average salary is is around 50 us dollars. And we pretend to work. And in the meantime, we have to find some other way to provide for our family so it's very it's 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 very sad to see and and in theory in a perfect world in the utopian world the a communism system works you put a bunch of computer programmers in a room they're going to create uh they're going to create the ussr because logically it makes sense but it doesn't because people are fallible and systems are corruptible and unless there's some accountability unless there's transparency unless there's a very clear way to to hold the leaders accountable and it doesn't it isn't related to whether you have a tank or not then it's going to be real tough to implement something like that and not have it go awry and yeah the anytime i hear more and more about the different histories of the different countries and how they went through that and mo- and this is a lot of this is complete education for me because i haven't studied romanian history i haven't studied really any history but my co-host Kareem would have loved to have been in this spot. I I should have uh, I should have let him come on instead. He would he's like a he's a major history buff, and he would have been going back. And you guys wouldn't have had a Bitcoin podcast anymore because he would have gone forth with you about <laughs> about the history of regimes before for for three hours, and then at the end of that, you would have been like, oh wait, uh, buy Bitcoin, hey, <laughs> and that was the end of that. But um, I uh, I hope that Bitcoin helps the world get its act together, no matter what. Because my, my father always told me, the only thing that you could ever do that I wouldn't respect you in is be a politician. I don't care what you do. 
in life. You can be uh, you can be a server at a restaurant, or you can be the CEO of a company. But if you are ever elected to political office, I will have no respect for you. And that's just kind of it's a hard line, but it really is. I you don't find politicians that aren't corrupt, and it's not like they're bad people. They just the incentives make it that way. And they make it that way in every country. It's so hard to stay moral when all of the incentives are to go the other way. So it's sad. And the the radical transparency that Bitcoin provides, or any distributed ledger technology, but Bitcoin in particular, is I'm hoping that we can leverage that in some way for accountability of politicians or corporations so that we can avoid Enron, we can avoid... Donald Trump, we can avoid all of the crazy people that have gotten to power or created companies. Because one of the scariest things about Vladimir Putin is I think he's way smarter than any leader we've ever had. And I think he's uh, very calculated in his terrible decisions and what he does. And that, that scares me more than anything. Well, let me tackle the issues in order. First of all, I have no <laughs> idea why you Westerners in, don't enjoy your freedom too much. Like you say, oh, this is terrible. I, I don't like this system. How about we get some more socialism? Because I went to Western campuses and I studied as an exchange in Paris and in Bologna in Italy, also in Gothenburg in Sweden. And all the students associations were kind of communist leaning and reading Karl Marx and trying to figure out an utopian way where everybody is equal and stuff like that. But I come from a country which had a bad experiment with that. And we all came to the conclusion that it's not going to work. It's not the idea that it's a bad, I'm trying to avoid the idea word again. So it's not about the ideas being wrong. <laughs> it's not that it's a, terrible thing to have people being equal and sharing all resources, but it, it doesn't work like that. We're not all the same. We don't have the same needs. We don't think the same. And the best way to merge all these elements is to create a kind of framework where all of us are able to accept each other and live peacefully without trying to impose something on the other person. I remember when I was in Italy, in Bologna, that they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution from 1917. And to a part of the world that was a turning point which led to a lot of murders, to a lot of wealth confiscation. And it was terrible because if you read the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, it's about the revolution that is brought by people who are laborers who get together and they establish this kind of revolution where they say, let's seize the means of production. It's very much like the unions that were established after his political writings. But it's not like some kind of figure comes from Switzerland. And right now I'm speaking of Vladimir Lenin. He comes from Switzerland where he lived in exile. He overthrows the weakened monarchy from Moscow and then says, let's build communism from above. 
and we are going to have central planning and if you're going to do this because I'm smart and you're not and I know better what you're supposed to be doing. It doesn't really work like that. It, it was like a system of equity that was built on the backbone of a former monarchy. So it didn't turn out well. I don't think there is any way for this type of communist revolution to occur just because we have our personal interests and it's impossible for all the workers of the world, like it says in the Communist Manifesto, to get together. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and it might work with a hundred people. I mean, you know, if you, it does on a small put scale, people, it works. Maybe. Yeah. So on a small scale, they can demand to have better wages, to have some kind of medical insurance, to have shorter working hours. But then again, they can just be replaced by workers from China and Taiwan. So that's the risk that you have to deal with in a global market where everything is dynamic and you have to think how you are special and how you are bringing something unique to this market. Otherwise, you're going to be replaced by somebody who is willing to do the same kind of labor for a smaller wage and doesn't complain. And yeah. this isn't necessarily evil because it also elevates their living standards. We have seen it happen with China. Now I hear a lot of rich people talking about moving to India because it's the next China where they can build whatever factories and develop their businesses. And it's, I don't think of it in terms of colonialism because colonialism meant something else when you would go there with an army and overtake the territory and impose your own government. This kind of economic colonialism where you just buy a factory and you establish some kind of economic model in a land that was foreign to anything so capitalist, I think it, it brings more benefits than disadvantages. It helps people find a proper job that helps them support and increases the living standards of the world. If we, we are, if ever we reach this kind of world government, then we need all countries to have some kind of development and be able to have a backbone, say something against that world power. As long as we have very developed countries and un underdeveloped ones where you don't find anything that is industrial or maybe that they're happier this way. Maybe. It's hard to quantify happiness. But they're not yes. going to be able to compete on a global scale and be the kind of actors that remain independent and have a word against the big bully unless they have some degree of development. In the United States, I think, since Benjamin Franklin, you have been calling this the philosophy of the bigger stick. And it's <laughs> been applied to foreign policy. So the way to deter bullies or to maintain peace around the world is to have the bigger stick, which I, I guess makes sense on a small scale. When it comes to nation states, it's much more difficult. 
But power should watch over power. That's the principle that James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all the other founding fathers of the United States have established in 1787. And from that point onwards, it was all about creating checks and balances. At the time, it was about creating checks and balances within that specific territory. Then they managed to do it in France two years later with the revolution, and the, Thomas Jefferson was a diplomat who lived in Paris for many years and actually helped France. And then democracy was spread all across the world in different shapes and forms. I think at some point in the future, it's going to be, okay, I, I feel bad right now that I, I have moved too much from the Bitcoin topic. <laughs> yeah. This is too political. <laughs> The but second it, part is nothing to do with Bitcoin at all. We're just talking. It's going to be about other countries that are able to leverage their power against others and make sure that they reach some kind of consensus and they negotiate the best kind of solution for all the stakeholders. And I can think about United Nations Security Council, which consists of the five big powers right now. So unless you have China and Russia and United States and France and Great Britain agreeing on the same issue, then there is going to be no military intervention by the United Nations. So it has to be something very global and very urgent. But there is a lot of criticism in regards to this system because there are big states and emergent big powers of the world that are not part of this. You have India, you have Israel, and Israel has, I think, the largest amount of nuclear weapons. And you have Brazil, and you have, um, let me think, maybe Australia, which is also a powerful state and has a lot of influence. And they should all become, in the future, actors to this kind of peacekeeping mechanism. And I think the more development that we have and the wealthier that the nations get, then we are going to create a model which takes away the power from the so-called big powers and decentralizes it into smaller states which actually have a word to say. Right now, I think it's obscene that you have a big corporation which owns more money than many nation states and you expect these nation states yeah. to actually have a word against whatever they are selling or the kind of corporate practices that they're having, because there is no chance for them to compete. But if they were more open to trade, I, I think the solution is not to restrict it and say, we're not going to allow you evil Westerners to get, to engage in trade within our territory. I think the solution is to invite everybody just like when they drafted the U.S. Constitution, Madison had this brilliant idea with the Federalist Papers and then the Federalist 10. And I know all of this because I have a degree in politics, just so you know. Oh, it's, it felt like I was talking to Kareem here, who also has his, his political uh, science degree. So that's why I was like, there's, there's so much. I can, only, I can only speak on such a small level, but yeah. Um, Anyway, you're saying federal, Federalist Papers. I was listening. Yeah, in Federalist number 10. 
James Madison tackles the idea of factions and thinks about basically the Federalist Papers were like a white paper for a new cryptocurrency project that they were trying to establish. And they were asking themselves, what's going, what can go wrong and what kind of ideals do we have? And the Federalist number 10 paper basically talks about 51% attacks in terms of cryptocurrency. Yeah. I'm trying to make this topical, but it talks no. about factions and how different groups of small interests can actually overtake the government. And the solution that Madison came up with was to actually encourage factions to exist as opposed to banning certain factions and allowing others to exist. As he thought that there is no way within that large territory of the United States of America for one faction or two factions to ever become prevalent and hold too much power. There will always be smaller actors which rise and big ones which collapse. And this whole dynamic is supposed to preserve and perpetuate the system. So it never fades. It's supposed to exist by the nature of our own being. I think that's something that you got very right with your constitution. And I have a lot of respect for Madison and Jefferson. I read their works with a lot of pleasure whenever I get the chance. And it just blows my mind that People were so brilliant, and there was that whole movement of in creating something new. There was that exuberance that maybe that now we're having with the idea of decentralizing. We're asking ourselves questions that were not even conceivable maybe a hundred years ago, just because we have become able to acquire these new standards of living and expectations in regards to our money, to our governments, and everything about our own lives. If we are able to demand greater privacy so that we are not surveilled all the time, and by the way, I know this is going to be listened by some kind of NSA agent or CIA. So yeah, hello. I think they're not listening. They're already not going to be listening. They're here. They're saying they're, they're, he's just holding his tongue. He wanted to participate when we said this, that Bitcoin was the CIA. Uh, the experiment. He was like, oh, you're right. Oh, oh, wait, I can't say anything. I'm just going to keep quiet. So we hear you, CIA. It's fine. You can hang out. This is a good conversation. Open to all. Yeah, but now we possess encryption. And part of, of the cypherpunk movement was to create privacy at all costs. If you read Tim May, who wrote the Cyphernomicon back in 1992, I think, and it's a very interesting manifesto about what the various cypherpunks were doing at the time. And it basically outlines this ideology that human nature in itself is good and bad actors are an exception to the rule and not the rule itself. So you should not take measures and govern according to the idea that anyone can be evil. You should just allow anyone to have the benefit of the doubt and maybe take away all the bad actors internally, not discourage any kind of activity based on the idea that it can go wrong. It's expressed in a way that is more radical, I think. He just says privacy should be absolute. And even if we have criminals that 
are using these privacy means, then we are not necessarily defending the criminals. We are defending a system which allows anyone to have equal chances to use privacy. That's something which is the backbone of Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin is not very cypherpunk in the sense that it, it was never really about privacy. It's transparent. It has an open ledger. You can see every transaction that ever took place on the blockchain if you have too much time on, on your hands. <laughs> or, but, or if you... There was a firm that was going around... Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but they were able to de-anonymize a massive amount of the Bitcoin wallets. Oh, Neutrino, the one that Coinbase acquired. Neutrino? Oh, my God. We just did a whole thing on those guys and what they were doing before they became Neutrino. And that was interesting. They, yeah, uh, it's terrible. They, they, yeah. They were basically helping all these regimes we've just been talking, talking bad about for the last hour. They were just helping them stay in power with their surveillance. And now, oh, and now they're going to come help everybody out with uh, cryptocurrency? All right. Good. Yeah, sure that's going to work out. Thanks, that's, a good, that's a big issue. And I think in the United States, it, it's inescapable to get away from the KYC procedures. I don't think there is any way for you to buy Bitcoin right now without signing up with your ID and giving away your personal information. So only peer-to-peer. If you were to just go buy it from some dude on the street, it's the only way. Uh, that none of all of my, I mean, I buy all mine on the Cash App, like, because it's uh, the easiest way for me to do it. Whenever I, the, the Cash App is Square Cash, so it's Jack Dorsey, the, the Twitter CEO. So he's actually pretty pro crypto, pro Bitcoin, actually, specifically. So he, there is a, there's like a little function in there where you can just go buy like a dollar or two dollars of Bitcoin at a time. So what I say all the time to our listeners is I'm like, you can get these little power-ups in there that say you get 10% off at Chipotle or 10% off at Whole Foods or something. And you could, and what I do is I put that on there and then I go swipe my card and whatever percentage off I got because I was using that, I just buy some more Bitcoin with it. So I buy like $2 here, $2 there. It's kind of, kind of interesting. I, I'm finding all the little ways that I can to do some accumulation. And so it's, it's easy in that regard, but the government's 100% aware of my address on there and obviously it's not even my private keys. So the... They are. They know what's going on, and I'd have to go through some serious hoops to find a way to make it impossible for them to see what I to see what I have. Oh yeah, which is sad. I mean, did you ever use CoinJoin? No, I have not. Um, the The only attempts that I would have ever made for privacy, uh, and and I I do try to do a lot of different privacy things in my own life. Like I use. Uh, Brave browser, you know, I do a lot of like, uh, you know, I, I try to use DuckDuckGo when I can, that kind of thing. But no, I haven't seen CoinJoin at all. I've only, I have some Monero. So <laughs> that's about the extent of my privacy. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that now you have Wasabi Wallet, which allows you to get 50 extra transactions, which makes your coins and makes it very difficult to trace back to their source. And this also helps with the fungibility of the Bitcoins, as Bitcoins in themselves are not fungible. They are created at different dates. They are created by different hardware. So they have this kind of fingerprint, and you can see where they come from. But when you mix different outputs and you put them together in other amounts, 
then it's going to be difficult for somebody else to refuse a payment from you. Because let's say that Coinbase says tomorrow that they're not going to accept any Bitcoins that were issued before 2014 because they assume that they come from the Silk Road. And that's criminal money, that's laundered, that's associated with cocaine. They, they can Which say anything. Not even outside the realm of possibility, they could say that. But they cannot do it if the coins are mixed and they come from different outputs. That you're going to have 0.0.1, which comes from Silk Road, but it's mixed with something which was issued last week. And there is, they are merged into one amount, and it's hard for them to refuse it. Also, if it becomes harder to trace, then I think their verification goes about 10 steps back. And Wasabi Wallet allows you to have 50 steps back merging, mixing. So it's brilliant in this regard. It's the only truly privacy-friendly feature that we have in Bitcoin up to this point. I know that they spoke about enabling confidential transactions and maybe having something which is similar to Zcash in terms of opt-in privacy. But it was never adopted just because I guess the developers are afraid of messing up a system which is still functional. And last summer, they had this issue with an inflation bug, which they found in the code, which wasn't exploited. It was discovered at the right time to not have it exploited. But if they had any kind of confidential transactions, which were not visible on the public ledger, then there would be no way to identify whether or not there was an inflation bug. So you could be having two more million Bitcoins out there hidden and you wouldn't know, which can mess up all the economy of the space. So it's very fragile. You may think that it's well-established and robust, but even the most robust of cryptocurrencies is fragile and it's one bad decision away from collapsing. Yeah, that's it's going to be that way for a while too. I mean, it's uh, it's a really bright and awesome future to think about, but scary at the same time. And people always come to me and they're like, "Oh, how much of my net worth should I put into to Bitcoin and all this stuff?" And so I don't give them financial advice, but I tell them, you know, don't don't put anything more in there than you could afford to lose because in if this goes to to zero tomorrow, in which there's this possibility there, you know, you can't be putting yourself in a bad spot. So the, the, the volatility or the risk is going to always be there, but that's why the upside is also still there. That's why this, this coin that was one, one penny per coin or $1 per coin has gotten so, has gotten so much value behind it because every, what, what drew me to this was all the smartest people I knew were already in and they had already been indoctrinated and they were like, no, Bitcoin's a future. So I had to go learn. I had to go learn why. I had to go, why are the people that I'm friends with that I consider smarter than me, and I have a pretty big ego, so it's not that many, why are they all interested in cryptocurrency? And then that's what that's what led us here. So I, th- I think that this is um, always going to be exciting and any any time there's a new feature on Bitcoin, it's great. 
But again, Bitcoin does have to be conservative by nature. They just do. And people who get frustrated with how slow they're moving, if they if they think they're moving slow, I mean, really, if you compare Bitcoin to any other technology, it's not moving that slow. But if they perceive it as that, they need to you know take a step back and think what happens if they push a push an update out that wasn't thought out properly and they destroy all of this value in the in the flick of a finger. But if Zcash had their their trusted setup wasn't actually trusted. What if we find that out 50 years from now that that when they created those uh, zero knowledge proofs, they actually didn't destroy those original keys. And now they have, you know, they can do whatever they want and have access to everything. Um, you know, that's uh, always, always on the front of my mind. Yeah. And if you watch, what's his name? Zuko, I think, the creator of Zcash, he brags all the time that he found a way to identify criminals using Zcash. And how the hell are you able to do that unless you have some kind of backdoor access into people's transactions? So you you have to trust Zcash. The whole thing about trustless, and and I feel like as long as you can get past that, they did privacy right, but, but it's so difficult to get past that. It just isn't my preference. Yeah, that's why you prefer Monero, I guess. Yes, yeah. If I'm if I'm picking between the two, I'd, and I also appreciate the Monero community when they will actively just say bad things about their own project. They will attack their own project. They they have they try to find the holes in their own project rather than just shut anybody up that says something bad about it. So I like that aspect of the community uh, itself. Whereas every other community, if you say something bad about I don't know, for instance, substratum, we have, <laughs> we think very poorly of all of the people involved with that project. And we've said it on many occasions and it's not like anybody's ever given us a reasonable explanation and been like, Oh, well, we think this, we think this now they just all yell at you and tell you, and they say, one of them was like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he owns escape rooms. That's all he does. And I'm like, Oh, sorry, I guess running successful businesses is a disqualifier now like i don't know but so it's it's interesting so yeah that that's another reason we're not we're not allowed to talk about these other coins what are we doing this is a this is a bitcoin podcast <laughs> i keep Obviously. going off on tangents but it, it's important to point out what makes bitcoin so special as i guess altcoins are necessary and are useful just to make comparisons and present something Maybe that they have this special feature which makes them unique, but they lack something which Bitcoin has and makes Bitcoin stand out as the king of them all. Yep. In the future, do I think that Bitcoin will always be the king? I have no idea. I don't know enough to say that, yes or no. Um, I would probably not say, just like I'm not willing to say the U.S. dollar will always be the, the, the king fiat I wouldn't be willing to say the same thing on Bitcoin, but the highest percentage of my portfolio by a large margin is in Bitcoin versus other coins. So uh, I'm putting my money where my mouth is on that as far as my thoughts. And I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't have the disdain for the altcoins that a lot of, uh, you know, people who would call themselves Bitcoin maximalists would have. I see competing projects as important to the space, just as I see 
crypto as a competing project to fiat money as important as an important thing for the world. So the competition is choice. The competition and choices matter a lot more than specific features and transactions per second on the Tron network. Yeah, that, that's where I agree. I think in general cryptocurrencies, and I think there are very few projects which can claim that they truly are cryptocurrencies and fulfill all, all the requirements to be a successful project, but they don't really compete with Visa and MasterCard and maybe other digital currencies like M-Pesa, which is popular in Africa, or WePay, which is popular in China. The purpose is not to compete with these particular services, but provide a system which not only establishes a parallel economy where people can trade, but also allows people to hedge against their governments and maintain the kind of assets that cannot be confiscated, cannot be inflated, cannot be arbitrarily modified by their corrupt governments. I think essentially cryptocurrencies, and I, I haven't thought about it in these terms before, but cryptocurrencies are a way of guaranteeing a functioning democratic system in a country. Yeah, yeah, I can I can agree with that. I, I hope they I hope they at least create a deterrent. I hope they're if nothing more than a nuclear weapon that sits there that's like, hey, if you screw up, we could all just switch right over here anytime. So make sure you do the right thing. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm ex- it's super late here. I'm like getting delirious. <laughs> I'm like just making stuff up at this point. This is yeah, fun. we spoke for over two and a half hours, so that's something. Yeah. What is your normal episode length? Is that like about right? Sometimes I don't impose any kind of length. Sometimes the conversations just go on and on. And other times it just ends at some point and we agree that it's the perfect kind of ending. We should just stop there and maybe continue at some other point. But this was also the first time we ever spoke. So it was That's a true. great way to know you and find out more about your background and your ideals and expectations in regards to Bitcoin and U.S. politics, because that was also a big part of our discussion. <laughs> we get yelled at all the time whenever we talk about politics on our show. They're, they're like, stick with crypto. We did an entire episode about Donald Trump, which is really stupid. We didn't even like really, we barely related it to crypto at all. And it was, we, we just, we decided we had to release an episode that week and that's just what was on our minds. I, I wish we could take that one back. We gave ourselves, we did these stupid, like we did a stupid like award ceremony at the end of the year and we gave ourselves like a bad award for that episode. <laughs> just, you know, Trump is great for Romania. As our oh, really? Is very good friends with him and is the only president of United uh, European Union to accept to give away 2% of the GDP to the financing of the military. One, one of the big claims of Donald Trump during his campaign was that the allies of the United States are not paying their fair share to the defense that they're getting, which I guess in a sense is fair. You want to get defended by the U.S. Army, you should not expect the federal government to constantly finance this operation. 
it, we're getting we're getting paid, just not in directly. It worked during the Cold War, but now it, I guess, it needs some kind of new deal or something. And Romania was the first country to accept it, and our president was uh, has met him a couple of times, and Trump always spoke. Like, you know, we have an example. Look at this guy. He, he's the only leader of Europe that agreed to have this kind of measure. Whereas Germany, I think for Germany, 2% of the GDP means a lot more than it means to us. And they had these tension and conflict and they were trying to say, no, we don't need you. And there, there were talks of establishing a European army to compensate for what they would not be getting from the United States anymore. But that's even more expensive. I'm not sure if that's going to work. But anyway... Maybe maybe someday we won't have to have armies. I don't know. What I need to do is I need to send Kareem on this show the next time we do it, it, if if we're invited back, because Kareem will have all kinds of cool stuff to say. He's uh, he's so much better. I like to... What I do is... I. I, I pick fights with Kareem. I just take the opposite opinion to him, and I don't tell him that I'm only doing it to see what he says. And then, and then I make him argue with me, and I just keep coming up with stupid arguments. And he gets all frustrated, but he does a very good job of defending his points. And then I can take those that information and use it in arguments later if I happen to agree with him. So that's always fun. Yeah, that's why we do podcasts. Yep. We sharpen is. our tongues. <laughs> Yep, it is super fun. I agree. It, I love I love podcasting, so uh, I'm I'm super happy I started it. Uh, you know, like 170 episodes of where we have been. I'm not slowing down anytime soon. So, so I guess the perfect way to end this is to tell us about the podcast and what you're aiming to do with your project. Well, what we what we started out doing was I wanted to have a podcast where I could learn about each individual project without, um, you know, being shilled the project. I never found that. I never found a podcast that would have like, here's our Litecoin episode, and we talk about the trade-off profile rather than just tell you the good things about Litecoin. So many different uh, crypto content creators would never say bad things about a project. And I understand why, because when we do say bad things, the community just attacks you. But I wanted that. I wanted that out there. I wanted the, the honesty and I wanted the, um, and I wanted to be basic enough for anybody to understand. So rather than go into, you know, what, a, you know, when we were, when we were talking about the, the coin joining, we we're talking about um, the, how those transactions mold together. I don't want to have to explain to the listeners how, um, what are those called? The, uh, uh, God, I can't think of the word. The um, God, so like the uh, the 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 things that, that they have to move around all together. Uh, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a the technical term that makes the the coins move around blocks together that are that are different. Uh, anyway, I'm doing a terrible job of even explaining what I was trying to explain. But I don't want to have to. I want to be able to tell them, hey, uh, zero knowledge proofs work by you know putting two colors of balls behind your back, pulling them out and you're colorblind and the other person tells you whether you switch the balls or not. And, and really breaking down it in a basic way that's understandable and also being reasonable, being upfront with our biases. If we own a coin, we say at the beginning of the show, we own it and that kind of thing. So 
Uh, and then we also have cool discussions with people from around the crypto space. And we've, we, we've never taken any compensation from a crypto project. Uh, we, took, we did take compensation one time from a company that was trying to get an allocation of an ICO, and I wish we didn't. We gave ourselves a bad award for that episode, but also one of our worst episodes. But uh, we, yeah, we just tried to stay independent and keep our biases in check and really talk about the fundamentals and the tech and the reasons behind cryptocurrency rather than the prices, the announcements, the hype, and the, the charts and whether they're making a dragon pattern or not. Yeah, so, that, that's a very legitimate claim and yeah. a good reason to be podcasting. Yep, that's what we did. If you if that sounds fun to you, cryptobasicpodcast.com is our our website or you know, you can search for crypto basic on there's there's no space normally, but we put a space on iTunes because we found out that we weren't ranking for crypto if we didn't space the word apart. So crypto basic was supposed to be a play on, you know, visual basic slash, you know, we want people to know that it's a basic show and that we're not getting too technical. And unfortunately, I've gotten more and more technical, but I still don't know, and I don't have any idea how to code. So that's that's where we ended up. And I like, I I love our listener base. Um, we don't get any really like trolls or people that come in and shill their projects. They they might come in and ask about projects in like our Discord or something. But uh, shout out to our community always that they are not, I guess, your standard crypto community. So they. They are very reasonable. And I would imagine based on the content that we've just created and the discourse that we have, that your community is very similar. And also the way that I even found you guys, because Anthony Lusardi was the one that kind of put us together in a little Twitter tag. Yeah. Anthony was very nice, and I'm happy that I, I got to have that interview with him, even though it was the shortest that I had that season because he... He was busy that day and had to do something else. But I guess that's also part of the reason why he resigned as the director of the ETC cooperative. As he, yeah. he was a more time pressured. Maybe I should invite him for another podcast and talk more in length. I thought about the, I thought about the same thing. He just announced, I don't know when this is gonna be released, but he just announced that he was that that he had resigned. And my immediate thought was, I want to get him on the show and talk about why he resigned. But his stated reason for resigning was that he didn't want to be involved in, like, social media. So I don't know if that's too insensitive to be like, hey, what's up? You want to come talk about it? So, so I decided not to ask him. But now when he hears this episode, he's going to be like, oh, man. He's either going to be like, he, I could have been on another episode, done another interview. Or he's going to be like, yeah, that's scumbag. He, he thought about asking me for an interview right away. Oh, no. I, I think you should pitch him by asking what he's about to do next. That's, that's a good point, yeah. So he has moved on from ETC Cooperative, and he is a competent developer. He can work on Bitcoin projects. He can pursue anything that he wants. So he must have some kind of preferences and special interests and some kind of plans that he made in the back of his mind while being stressed doing social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't, actually, I'm excited. He's he's in our Discord, so I I tagged him and I gave him a little sad face, and 
and said, I hope he continues to use our discord as like the only social media that he uses. So he's, he, I, I love his insight whenever things come up. So he's a, he's, he's a good guy. And I, I should go listen to your interview with him. I haven't even listened to that yet. So uh, I'm sure there's great, even though, even though it's short, I'm sure there's some great content there. Yeah, I think you should listen to it just because it's short and it encapsulates a lot of information in a short amount of time. All right, well, that's that's next on my to-do list. Then I'm gonna go. I'll go check that out and I'll make sure I've done it before this season comes out, so that I can, I don't know, mention it to him and be like, "Hey, this is why my interview was so much better than yours." <laughs> oh yeah, you, you can claim that. Anyway, isn't it like 4 a.m. where you live? It is. It, it is 4 a.m. I am uh, e even though I am a night owl, I am actually getting pretty tired. I couldn't even think of the word for. I still can't think of it. The, the I'm so mad. I can't think of this word. The um, uh, I'm gonna be so mad. The um, uh, what? That, maybe you, the word that. Anyway, you're about to sign us off. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna send this to you on Twitter as soon as I think about it, and you're gonna. You're gonna laugh because it's an. It's an easy thing that I can't get to my mind for right now for some reason. It was the same when we first started to speak. In the first half of this podcast, I was just groggy and had my mind really foggy. It was hard for me to collect my memories and thoughts. But now I'm starting to wake up and become more active and you're fading and getting more tired. Yeah, we switched positions. Yeah, I guess we're even by now. <laughs> So thank you very much, Brent. This was great. And I'm happy that I got to have your insights on whatever this crazy space of Bitcoin is. And I hope that you carry on with your project and keep on doing interviews as I regard this as a very noble pursuit, which doesn't make you any money, makes you lose a lot of money and a lot of time that you could be using to make money. But it's great to cultivate our intellects and maybe learn something new that may be useful to us at some point in the future whenever this crazy decentralization comes to fruition so thank you very much no thank you for having me on glad i appreciate it and uh and hopefully everybody enjoyed this this episode as much as we did recording okay just so you know you're you'll be the one to post it first, so I'll send you the file. <laughs> All right, awesome. This will be look forward podcast. to that. Okay, so I'll see you later. All right, thanks everybody. Bye.